Please take your copy of God's Word and turn to the book of Habakkuk. Today we are in Habakkuk chapter 2. Habakkuk chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's one in the pew there in front of you. And it is on page 509. That's where you'll find Habakkuk chapter 2. I'd encourage you to grab that. Follow along there. Today I'll be reading God's second response to Habakkuk. And I will read verses 2 through 5. But we need to know that this response runs through the end of the chapter And we will touch on a portion of that um, today, but we'll get to that in a few weeks. But we need to know that contextually, God's response runs through the end of the chapter. And I'll read today 2 through 5, and our preaching portion will be verse 3 alone. Verse 3 alone today. So if you found your place there, please go ahead and stand as we honor the reading of God's Word. This is Habakkuk speaking now. He says, And the Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come, it will not delay. Behold, behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, and an arrogant man is never at rest. His greed is as white as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. The righteous will live by faith. That little phrase changed the course of world history. And that is not an overstatement. In fact, it may be an understatement. The righteous will live by faith. Around 1515, Martin Luther, uh, then an obscure monk no one had ever heard of, would study these words from the book of Romans, and the world would literally never be the same again. It sparked the Protestant Reformation, these words, the righteous will live by faith, and gave birth to Western civilization as we know it. And it brought about the end of the Holy Roman Empire. Some 60 years earlier, we talk about God being providential and sovereign over the nations. Some 60 years before this, in 1453, the Ottoman Empire, that is the Muslim Empire, conquered the city of Constantinople. And they would later change the name to Istanbul. And something interesting happened as they were approaching to invade in order to preserve many Greek texts of the Bible, the Greek and Hebrew text, uh, many monks and clergy grabbed up those texts and fled to the West, where they were became refugees. And they brought those texts into the Holy Roman Empire. Where the most for the most part, everyone was only reading Latin, though very few had ever encountered the Greek. And so what was written in the original language of the New Testament became more widely available. And a strange providential effect occurred because the Ottoman Empire invaded Constantinople. Some 50 or 60 years later, depending on the timeline, this monk who is a nobody begins to study Greek. And he learns Greek and Hebrew, 
becomes a theology professor. And in 1515 to 1516, he set about to teach the book of Romans to his students. And he began to study Romans and encountered this phrase, the righteous will live by faith. It was a text that haunted him. He couldn't figure it out. He thought about it night and day. He encountered the, this text in Romans 1, 16-17, which says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Listen to Luther's own words as God brought awakening to his soul through the discovery of the truth of what these words mean. Luther, who was a very pious monk and sought to justify himself by his works, listen to what he said. I greatly long to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans, and nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the justice of God. Because I took it to mean that justice whereby God is just and deals justly in punishing the unjust. My situation was that, although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner, troubled in my conscience, and I had no confidence that my merit would assuage God. Therefore, I did not love a just and angry God, but rather hated and murmured against Him. Yet I clung to the dear Paul and had a great yearning to know what he meant. Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just shall live by his faith. Then I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which, through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us through faith. Therefore, I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of Scripture took on a new meaning, and whereas before the justice of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet and great love. This passage of Paul became me, to me a gateway to heaven. The righteous will live by faith. And in this text, Luther found that men and women are made right with God not by human works. That is, men and women don't make it to heaven because they're good. But they make it to heaven, they're made right with God because of faith alone in what God has done through Christ and through Christ alone. And now when someone places their faith in Jesus and they are believing in His death on the cross for their sins, in His resurrection and conquering of death on their behalf, that they are simply made right with God just by taking God at His word and believing, that is, having faith in Christ. And simply taking God at His word, God gives that person the righteousness of God. This is the heart of the gospel. It's the very heart of the gospel. And it is truly what Luther said, this is the gateway to heaven. So if you're here today and you aren't a Christian, simply come to God through Christ. Leave your sins. Trust Christ to save you. He'll save you. This is the gateway to heaven. And we find in God, not this, a judgmental God, but a God that is ready to give grace and mercy to anyone, any sinner, no matter how bad they may be. He'll freely forgive them and give them His own righteousness 
He'll give them that of Christ. Now, what is interesting is that this phrase, the righteous will live by faith, it doesn't originate in Romans. Paul quotes it here in Romans, of course, and Luther discovered it in Romans. It's not, it's not original to Paul. It's, Paul is expounding in Romans really 1 through 5 the idea here of the righteous will live by faith. And it's not original to Paul. It, it's Paul becomes a steward of God to reveal it to us more clearly. Luther didn't discover it. It comes from God himself. It's revealed, as we'll see in the coming weeks, it's really revealed in Abraham. But it's stated explicitly first by God in Habakkuk. It's stated explicitly by God in Habakkuk in a text that's about God's sovereignty and grappling with the problem of evil and wickedness. And then here comes this phrase in Habakkuk, in Habakkuk chapter 2, that the righteous will live by faith. So let's reorient ourselves to this book. It's an incredibly timely book for what's going on in the world today. wasn't planned out that way. I've been planning on to preach it forever, but yeah, here we are. So verses 1 through 4, Habakkuk's original complaint or lament to God. If you look at your Bible, you'll see he's lamenting to God the state of Judah or the southern kingdom of Israel. They've become incredibly wicked and perverse. They're immoral. There is injustice. The rich are oppressing the poor and the weak. At this time, they look just like the Canaanites. They're even engaged in child sacrifice. They're worshiping false gods. There's immorality everywhere. So he's lamenting to God. God, why don't you do something about this? Uh, perhaps God will bring a revival or something. So he's been praying to God repeatedly. He's lamenting. And then God answers in verse 5 through 11. And he says, I am going to do something about it. I'm going to stop their wickedness and their evil. But it's a surprise because it doesn't come from within. God's bringing a nation against them to judge them. God will judge them for their evil and wickedness by raising up the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, and they will destroy and take the people away into captivity. It's a shock. It's a surprise. It's a dreadful proclamation of God. And this causes Habakkuk to grapple again and, and complain again to God. And that's what we saw last week, Habakkuk's complaint. Habakkuk complains to God beginning in one twelve, ending in two one. And he's grappling with this. How can those that are more wicked triumph over the less wicked? So he's saying, your answer to fixing the wickedness is to let the more wicked prosper over the wicked. And he's grappling with the sovereignty of God and how, the, how, how does this fit with God's character and nature. He never blasphemes God. But it, it revealed to us last week, if you remember, the legitimacy of complaining to God. We think we can never complain to God. Remember what he did. He prayed and he recounted God's, the truth of God's nature. And that became a foundation and a grounding for him. That he could rest on who God is, that God always does what is right, and then he complains about this problem. It keeps him from becoming like Job's, Job's wife. who Job's wife tells Job, just curse God and die. And that can be what happens to us, unfortunately, sometimes when we encounter incredibly bad things in life, right? Sometime in our life, something terrible is going to happen to us. Do you live long enough? It will. What can ground you? What can keep you from blaspheming God and just leaving the faith? God himself, his character and nature. That's what we saw as Habakkuk complains. It's grounded in God's faithfulness. 
So he goes to the only one he can complain to, and he says, God, you're just going to let the Babylonians go on destroying everybody? That's how his complaint ends. Will they just go on mercilessly killing nations forever? They're just steamrolling and taking people away in captivity? Are you really just going to let wickedness go unchecked? And then God now responds to his complaint, his second complaint. God's response is found in 2, 2, 2 through 2. 20. And God's response is this in a nutshell. Babylon will be judged and Babylon will be destroyed. Or we could say it another way. The wicked, the wickedly proud will suffer destruction, but the righteous will live by faith. That's the heart of what God says in his response. So we'll be interacting with this text for the next couple of weeks And in particular for these next two weeks, for this week and the next, we're really going to focus in on uh, the phrase, the righteous will live by faith. That's at the heart of God's answer. And today we'll be looking at um, four characteristics of the foundation of saving faith. So before we get to faith itself, which is next week, we'll look at the antithesis of saving faith where we really dive in and we see how does God teach us about saving faith. This week we see the foundation of saving faith, which is God's word. So today as we look at the foundation of of saving faith, we see four characteristics of the foundation of saving faith. But you might ask this question, what is saving faith? If the righteous will live by faith, what is saving faith? Here's the simplest definition. Faith is just trust. It's more than, like, believe. in our language, we say believe, right? But you may believe a collection of facts about someone, and that's, that's not saving faith. Trust is what saving faith is. It's trust, right? It's like when you came here this morning, you got in your car and you turned the keys, and you didn't, like, second guess if their explosion was going to, like, engulf you in a fireball, a gasoline fire, right? You didn't think a thing about it. You simply trusted your car. You exercise trust all the time. You trust people in your life all the time, right? And the more you know someone, the closer they come to you. They come to you, a, a close friend, a confidant. You may entrust them with the most precious things in your life. You may even do your will and testament, and you may give your children over to them if you die, right? So you see the person, you know the person, you begin to trust them. I, can, I could give them what's most precious to me. And trust in God is that. It is believing God, His character, nature, and His word, and entrusting to Him what is most precious to you, your eternity, your eternal soul. You're taking God at His word. I cannot make myself right with God, but God will save me in Jesus Christ, and I give myself to Him. I'm trusting Him. It's like like sitting down in a chair, right? It's like... If you want to get this idea, you're sitting down in a chair right here in the pew. And um, you never second guess it. You never second guess it. You're just sitting there. And it may be misplaced trust. I'm just telling you. It might be. Because maybe at one time one almost broke and someone fell through. Right back there in the back left. Who's in the back left? And it was a loud crack. So maybe a misplaced trust. But God's having faith in God is never misplaced. He always does what he says. He's trustworthy. That's saving faith. 
simply trust Him. I cannot justify myself before a holy God, but God will give me His own righteousness in Christ. I believe Him. I'll entrust to Jesus my eternal soul. That's saving faith. And every day when a Christian wakes up, they exercise that faith anew. They wake up every day trusting Christ. The righteous live by faith. Not just one time. Every day. So my purpose today is that I think I would love for every single person here to be trusting Christ today. The righteous live by faith. I would pray that today that's you. But in order to get to that, we need to get to the foundation of saving faith. That's the foundation of God's Word. God's Word in Habakkuk 2, 2-20 is God's answer to Habakkuk's struggle with the problem of evil and his complaint about how the wicked are triumphing over those less wicked. The proud and the wicked, as God says here, are destined for destruction, but the righteous will live by faith. Babylon will be destroyed. The earth will eventually be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, as we will see. And God's revelation to Habakkuk is trustworthy. And in God's answer to Habakkuk, what he tells him about his word and his revelation, we're able, I think, to see four characteristics about the foundation of our faith. Four characteristics about the foundation of our faith, which is God's word. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. So number one, the first characteristic of the foundation of our faith is that God's revelation to man is written. God's revelation to man is written. When God has something He wants man to know and to pass down from one generation to the next, He reveals Himself to a prophet, to an apostle, to someone, and they write it down. God says, look back at your text, write the vision. In other words, write what you're about to encounter with me as I reveal all of this to you. Write it down, make it plain on tablets. And tablets kind of... They kind of give us an illusion back even to Moses and the Ten Commandments. Like, God's revelation is this important that He says, write it down on stone tablets. God's revelation is written. A prophet doesn't just keep this information to himself or go around continually telling people over and over this. He takes what God has given him and he records it because it's important. And what's written down can be transmitted from from one generation to the next and it can be transported. Right? Make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. God's prophets are, are said to run with God's revelation. And in case you think there's something more to it, that, like I initially thought as I was investigating, there's really not. Tablets can be carried around from town to town. And then God's herald can proclaim God's word. So they write it down on tablets and run to the next town and declare it. God is coming in wrath and judging Judah, but he will eventually destroy the Babylonians. Write this revelation down so that those can run and declare it. This passage is written, and this revelation has a future fulfillment component. That's another reason to write it. 
Write it down so that when it happens, you'll know that this was the revelation from God. When God spoke to prophets and apostles, what God said was written down so that future generations could have it and see that he was faithful and fulfilled his promises. And for this purpose, that they might check any future revelation against what was already written down. That's very important. Future generations may test any successive revelation from God, from a supposed prophet, by what's already been recorded by God and written down. Prophets don't just speak on their own authority, and that's one way you know. Does it conform with what, with what God has already said? Prophets are not speaking. They're not, they're not like throwing bones out like the prophets of other nations and interpreting the signs and the omens. They're receiving a, a divine encounter with supernatural being, a person who communicates face-to-face in the Old Testament, audibly like we do, sometimes in visions, communicates in a way that can be known so that there's nothing left to the imagination of the prophet. And the prophet then takes what God tells him and writes it and records it. And any future generation may be able to interpret it. Second Peter 1, 20-21 reminds us of this. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And 2 Timothy 3.16 reminds us that all Scripture is God-breathed. It is God's words, not Habakkuk's words, not Habakkuk's interpretations of the rising and falling of nations, of what might take place. God tells him exactly what will take place, and he tells him to write it down. So he writes it down. God's revelation carries with it God's character. A person's word is only as good as the person who gives it. And God is holy and perfect, and therefore whatever he reveals to man through a prophet or an apostle carries with it the same perfection, and it is written down. And that is what we have here in the Bible. Habakkuk is one element of that revelation, but we have 66 books here, all inspired by the Holy Spirit, communicated by God through prophets and apostles, and they wrote it down because it's important. And all Future revelation, as the, as the Bible is being built by God over thousands of years, all can be checked against what God has already said previously. We have a trustworthy word here. The foundation of saving faith is written revelation from God. Written revelation. Even though this is explicitly true, and even though Christians for, what did it say, 2,000 years, but really it's 1,900 years because the rise of liberalism really changed this at the turn of the century in the 1900s. So for 1,900 years, that's what Christians believed. God had prophets write His Word down. We know what He said. That is the foundation of our faith. Even though that has been true, it's changed, right? So the largest Methodist church in America, I believe, is um, called the Church of the Resurrection in Kansas City. It's for sure the largest in Kansas City. It's massive. I think it's the largest in America. It's pastored by Adam Hamilton. And Adam Hamilton has written a book about the Bible. And in his book about the Bible, he denies what I just told you. 
And this is what he says. God's word can be taken and put into three buckets. Okay? In one bucket, you got, you've got words that God never intended. And then just wrote them down. Right? Then you've got words of God that are only intended for a period of time in a culture. Then you've got a bucket where there are God's words that are eternally authoritative and trustworthy. Who do you think's the expert that gets to tell you which ones are which? Right? Adam Hamilton, of course. And you know which ones go in the words that God never intended. It's those of the sexual ethics that we don't like. And other things like that. So, words God never intended. Words intended only for some time in some culture. Eternal, eternally authoritative, authoritative, trustworthy words. Right? Thank God Adam Hamilton's alive to tell you which ones to believe. But no longer is it just from liberal theologians that this is coming, this kind of attack on God's word that has been believed by the church for 1,900 years. But it comes from people like Andy Stanley, conservatives, so-called conservatives like Andy Stanley, pastor of megachurch in Georgia, son of Charles Stanley, who you may have seen on the TV growing up. Andy Stanley, two weeks ago, preached a sermon, and the gist of the sermon is this, Christianity does not exist because of the Bible. And the truth of Christianity does not rest on the truthfulness of the Bible. Christianity, he says, exists because Jesus rose from the dead. I'll just, I'm just going to read to you his own words, okay? Here's what he says. When it comes to knowing if there is a God, and if there is a God, what God is like, and when it comes to trying to figure out who God likes, does it really come down to the Bible tells us so, or any other religious literature tells us so? I mean, we're modern people, rational people. Are we really expected to believe what we believe or believe anything based on a collection of ancient manuscripts written by potentially dozens of men? Men only, there you go, you know where he's going. Men only who didn't even know each other over the course of hundreds and hundreds of years. It's really over a thousand, but details. And a world without science in the way that we think of modern science, and I'm in a world where everybody believed that there were some gods or some gods or something. And he says this, the truth of Christians, the truth is Christians are not expected to believe what we believe based on a collection of ancient manuscripts written by men who never met each other over the course of hundreds of years when everybody was superstitious and everybody believed in gods and there were no modern science. The Christian faith does not rise and fall based on the accuracy or inerrancy of 66 ancient documents that we call books of the Bible. It rises and falls on the identity of a single individual, Jesus of Nazareth. What the Bible teaches and what I am arguing is that when God speaks, it is reliable, it is inerrant, it is true, and what is written down and what we have is God's words. And that when God spoke to a prophet or an apostle, when he inspired revelation, they wrote it down. And what we have is God's trustworthy word carried from one generation to the next. It, it always is perplexing to think about this. It's amazing how many people will believe that God can create this universe from nothing. He can create this universe from nothing. Jesus can rise from the dead, but God can't communicate to you. And he can't preserve that word through history. That is perplexing to me. But of course he did. He clearly communicated 
the most intelligent being in the universe, a billionfold more than us, knows how to communicate. He has to even condescend to our level to communicate. And what a, what a grace that is. We wouldn't know anything about God had he not revealed it to us. How do you have access to a transcendent being? How? He's outside of time and space. He's beyond the confines of the universe. How will you learn a thing about him? He's holy and perfect and sinners cannot approach a holy God. He would have to reveal himself to you. And of course he did. And of course, we don't know even who Jesus is. We get back to this Andy Stanley thing. We don't even know who Jesus is apart from the Bible. Who is he? Well, go to Tacitus then. Go to the ancient Roman historians and try to compile Jesus. You'll get a little bit here, a little piece here. Go to Josephus. You're not going to know who Jesus is apart from the Bible. right? But we know who he is because of the Bible, because of the Old Testament. We're able to see all of of God's prophecies concerning the Messiah, concerning the the one who will sit on David's throne forever and ever. So when he comes in the New Testament, you know who he is. And we have access even now to the New Testament. So we can know even more about who he is. You don't even know Jesus rose from the dead apart from the Bible. God's word is written. It's the foundation of our faith. And when it comes to Habakkuk, There is this issue that Habakkuk has. He has been lamenting the problem of evil. Will the wicked Babylonians go on destroying nation after nation? Will evil triumph once and for all? Will evil triumph? Will it go unchecked into the future forever? That's Habakkuk's lament. Maybe you've lamented that before. I can say no. Because I believe what God said to Habakkuk. How will Adam Hamilton or Andy Stanley answer that for his people that are struggling with the problem of evil? Will evil win in the end? My answer is no, because God tells Habakkuk no. And we're going to get into that more. But that's why I believe it. I believe God triumphs over evil because he says he will. And he does. He told Habakkuk, judgment is coming for the Babylonians. Write it down. So when it takes place you know, and pass it out, run with it, take it everywhere. That's the first characteristic of the foundation of our faith. We can have faith in God at all. The righteous live by faith because we have the foundation of God's written word. We also have this characteristic of the foundation of our faith in God's written word. God's revelation to man is plain. Not only do we have a collection of God's written word, it's plain. Okay. God tells Habakkuk, make it plain. Make it clear. God's communicated in such a way that anyone can understand. And I will argue anyone that can read can understand God's Word. Are there parts in God's Word that are confusing? Sure, of course. There are parts in God's Word words that are confusing. But God's Word on a broad whole is perfectly clear. Now, what is normal in world history and religions is not this case. Okay? It's not the case at all. What is normal in world religions and world history is an elite few who have access to God, right? who have secrets. The Babylonian mystery religions, 
the Greek mystery religions. You can go read about these. These are some wild stuff. The Roman mystery religions where you go through these secret rites and then you go up different levels and they give you a little bit more once you pass certain levels. These secret mystery religions. Scientology is a mystery religion. We have one in America. Right? It's the Hollywood elite's mystery religion is Scientology. You enter and they give you just a little bit, right? And after you pay so much money and you put in so much time, man, you can progress a little bit. Then maybe after like 20 years and you reach Tom Cruise level, well, then you discover like a volcano erupted and were seeded by aliens and all of these weird stuff. Right? But that's the stuff they don't let you know in the entry. It's the secret mystery religion. And that's Scientology. The regular everyday people can't say, hey, give me all the scrolls of Scientology. Let me read them all. Can't do it. And for a long time, the Roman Catholic Church was this. It was a Babylonian mystery religion. They kept God's word from the common people so that they couldn't read it. And they did this in two ways. Everything was hidden behind the Latin language. And no one read Latin. Not even some of the priests. So when, at Martin, when Martin Luther came along, some of the priests in his day were doing the Mass in a language they didn't even understand. So you know the people in the pews, they had no idea what they were doing, what, they were be, what was being said to them. There was no preaching of God's Word. It was all in this ancient language that nobody knew. And the other way was, not only was it hidden in Latin, they forbid the Bible from ever being translated into the common tongue. And so what happened in the Reformation with Luther, one of the things that happened is it became a, a Reformation of the Word of God. So Luther set out, right, he had his here I stand, I can do no other showdown with the church authorities. And then he was carried away, he was kidnapped so that they couldn't kill him and taken out to a castle. And, he, and there he was hidden away. And while he was hiding in that castle, he started translating the Bible into German. And he translated the Bible into German. He wanted everybody to read the Bible. And the same thing was happening during this time in England. It's a reformation of the Word of God. So in England, you had Wycliffe and Tyndale. And they wanted everybody to be able to read God's Word because God's Word is clear. Anybody can read it and know what God says. And so Tyndale, who eventually gave his life, he was burned at the stake for this after they caught him, but he, not until after he had completed the majority of his work. Listen to what he says. He's conversing with a... Uh, a Roman Catholic cleric who recognizes Tyndale's brilliance and his knowledge of God's word and God's law. He's conversing with this cleric, and this cleric says to him, I'll just read this to you. Conversing with a cleric about the many religious controversies of the day when Tyndale's superior scripture knowledge and skill caused the other man to respond that it was better to be without God's law than without the Pope's law. Tyndale replied, I defy the Pope and all his laws. If God spare my life for many years, I will cause the boy that drives the plow to know more of the scriptures than you do. And he did, and he gave his life for that. Burned at the stake. Why? Because Tyndale, Luther, they believe God's word is clear. And that anyone could, that could read could grasp it. 
the Bible as a whole is generally clear. There are some confusing parts, right? So if you just take your Bible up and you get, oh, here I am in Isaiah, I don't understand all these historical things that are going on. But for the majority of the Bible is incredibly clear. And I think without a doubt, if you read the Bible, you can get this. The fall in Genesis. That sin has ruined the world. God's promise to fix a broken world through a coming promised one. And this plan centers on a Messiah. God's law is clear. The Ten Commandments, incredibly clear. I have broken God's law. I am a sinner. God judges sin. The wages of sin is death. Jesus is God. Jesus is the Messiah. God's promises and His plan all center on Jesus. The Father is God. The Spirit is God. God will once and for all judge evil. God will remake the world through what Christ has done. There will be a new heaven and a new earth, and anyone in Christ will be raised from the dead. Anybody that can read will immediately, if they read the Bible, they will know all of that. All of it. It doesn't take a PhD to tell you this. We don't have a mystery religion. God's word is plain and it is clear. Now, there are many elite in the academic world that would like to create a new mystery religion and like to tell you that all of the things the Bible cannot really be understood apart from what they have learned and behind their titles. They're the gatekeepers. They're the new gatekeepers. And I contend otherwise. God's revelation is clear and it's plain. You can understand God's word. Anyone can. I recently did a wedding here with one of our members, Daniel, Katie, his new bride. Here's her conversion. She grew up in a home, not a Christian home. Her parents, her father was into spiritism, like new age spiritism. And one day she said to God, God, I want to know if you're real or not. Something like this. So providentially, someone gave her a Bible. And she began to read the Bible. And she said, I read the whole Bible in 90 days. And at the end of it, I was a Christian. No one shared the gospel with her. No person. No one discipled her. She had no other Christians in her life. She then goes and finds a church, joins the church, and is baptized. God's word is clear. Anyone who can read can understand it. So here's my question to you. Have you ever read God's word? And if you haven't, why not? From cover to cover. Are there going to be parts that are confusing? Sure. Sure, sure there are. That We are a long ways removed in our culture from a lot of the things that are in the Bible. But all of the things, the most important things, are abundantly clear. Super clear. So that's my challenge to you before the end of the year. Before the end of this year, read your whole Bible from beginning to end. It will be better for you than listening to 5,000 sermons that I preach. I guarantee it. It's a guarantee. The first characteristic of the foundation of our faith is God's revelation to man is written. The second is the foundation. The second characteristic of the foundation of our faith is that God's revelation to man is plain. 
plain and it's clear. The third characteristic of the foundation of our faith, of God's revelation to us, God's revelation to man is trustworthy. You can trust God's word. God's, God means what he says, and he says what he means. This is, this is verse 3. Look at verse 3. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come to pass. It will not delay. This is the characteristic of our foundation of our faith. God's word does not lie. God's word carries the same attribute and character of him, and that is completely trustworthy. God cannot lie. It is impossible for God to lie, actually, Hebrews 6, 18. Therefore, his word can't lie. It's trustworthy. Additionally, God doesn't change. God doesn't change from season to season or because our culture changes or time changes. James 1.17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from, a, from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation of shadow due to change. So on a sundial, as the sun moves, the shadows change. God doesn't change because time changes. And therefore, His Word never changes. Supposedly, we're on the wrong side of history. I keep hearing this. We're on the wrong side of history. And it's interesting to me that the same people that believe this, these people part of the the so-called sexual revolution we're going through, are the very same ones that attempt to cause doubt about the trustworthiness of what God has said. Every single time. Every time. If you're on the same side of history as the sexual ethics of Babylon in Greece and Rome, you're on the wrong side of history. God's word does not change because cultures change, because nations change, because time changes. History cannot outpace God. Isaiah 48 says, The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Nations wither, nations fade, Sexual revolutions come and go, but God's word is the same forever. It never changes. Psalm 119, 89 through 90 says, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures from generation to generation. You have established the earth and it stands fast. God's word is the same character he does. It is trustworthy. It cannot lie. It does not change with the culture. Habakkuk has lamented. He's complained to God. Will the Babylonians go on destroying and sweeping away nations and carrying off people into captivity? Will they conquer people more righteous than they are? Will wickedness triumph? Are you going to do anything about this? And God says, I am. Write it down. And then he tells him in 2 through 20. Verse 2 of chapter 2 through the end of the chapter. And the answer is yes. God is going to absolutely and utterly destroy the Babylonians. He will judge them and their wickedness. But the time is not yet. So he tells them, write it down and wait. If it seems slow, if it seems like it's not coming, just wait. It's coming. It's God's word. The, je- the, day, of coming, the day of judgment was coming for the Babylonians. It would take over 70 years from the time that he first spoke, it would be a little more than 70 years, but the time came. And the time is actually recorded in your Bible. 
The day of judgment came and fell upon Babylon in an instant. It's 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 an incredible story. You should go read the whole story. It takes place in Daniel chapter 5. I'll read you the, the last part of it. Daniel chapter 5, verse 24 through 31. But here's the setup. The king of Babylon's having a big drunk, drunken fest, a big drunken party. He's got all of the, the gold of, that he's conquered of the nations around him. They're all having a great time. And they're, just, they're, getting, they're getting smashed. And then all of a sudden, a hand, a supernatural hand comes out of nowhere. It's so creepy if you read the story. And it starts to write on the wall. And they're all like, what does it say? And like he brings in all of his like seers and his fortune tellers, you know, and the people that they'll throw the bones in and they'll interpret the signs and nobody knows what it says. They're like, we don't know what it says. Like, and then they say, go get Daniel. Of course, go get Daniel, right? Daniel, the wise man, the one, the one who they already know knows the, the one true God. They're, go get Daniel. Like Daniel, Daniel knows this stuff. So they go get Daniel, and Daniel can read the writing on the wall. That's where the phrase, can you read the writing on the wall, comes from. Did you know that? Read the writing on the wall. Here it is. This is what happens. Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed, Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel. You have been weighed in the balances and have found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. Now, I have to laugh at that because the kingdom only lasts like a couple more hours. But that's pretty sweet to be the third ruler in a kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Darius, the father of Xerxes. God's word is trustworthy. God always says exactly what he means, and what he says will happen. It doesn't matter if it seems like there's a delay. God would judge Judah. God would then judge the Babylonians for their wickedness. We can trust God. We can take him at his word. This is a characteristic of the foundation of our faith. We cannot have any real faith about apart from God's word being trustworthy. We can't. If it's just some guy trying to interpret the wind blowing through the leaves and giving his interpretation, we have, we have no trust in that. God has communicated clearly as we communicate. That was written down. It's trustworthy it always comes about. It has the character and nature of who God is. And this is how we know when we come to the New Testament that when Jesus says that he will save anyone that comes to him, that we can trust him. We can simply take him at his word because God's word is trustworthy. So we know if we entrust our lives to Christ, if we repent, if we turn from our sin of living our life our own way, of, of even maybe sometimes trying to justify ourselves through our actions before God, if we turn from all of that and if we simply come to Christ, if we simply trust Him, that He'll save us, that He'll forgive us of our sins, that He'll give us a new life, that He'll sanctify us, that he'll help us to persevere to the end. 
that he'll raise us up on the last day, that death won't be the end of us, and that we will be glorified. We don't have to fear death. God saves in Christ, and we can take him at his word. The righteous will live by faith. This is what Paul says. This is what Habakkuk says. And the reason it's true is because God's word is trustworthy. He always does what he says, even if it seems delayed. The first characteristic of the foundation of our faith is God's revelation revelation to man is written. Second, God's revelation to man is plain. Third, God's revelation to man is trustworthy. Now, lastly, God's revelation to man is Christological. That is just a fancy theological term, meaning God's revelation to man is all about Jesus. From beginning to end, it's all about Jesus Now, that's what I want to do in this portion of this text now, of this sermon. I want to show you how this text legitimately is about Jesus. So, I don't want you to feel, what I don't want you to feel is like, man, I never would have got that. I could have never got that from the passage. And then I undermine my other point, that Scripture is plain. And now you have to rely on some expert to show you how Christ is in the Bible. That's not what I want to do. I want to show you how it's there, and you can employ the same hermeneutic, the same reading of the Bible to see that it's there. It's there. Right? Spurgeon once said this, Just as in England there is a road from every town and village to London, in Scripture there is... In every scripture, a legitimate road to Christ. You don't have to like reinvent this stuff, right? You don't have to go, oh, uh, Rahab had a scarlet thread that she hung out, and it's scarlet like Jesus' blood, and look, Jesus is there. There's an illegitimate way and a legitimate way. So first, contextually, like we couldn't do it all at once. It would have been super cool if we could, but 2 through 2.20 is God's answer. So if you read all of 2 through 2.20... That's where you're going to get this part. It's Christological. And it's all found in God's pronouncement that he will judge Babylon, in God's woes. God begins to pronounce woes upon them in verse 6. And then all of a sudden, in these five woes, like woe, like that's judgment. Judgment. There's all this judgment on Babylon. Surprise. Verse 14 comes out of nowhere. Like, all of a sudden, the sun explodes. Like, what is this passage you've been doing here? And it says this, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And you say, that's interesting. I've heard that before because you've read the Bible this year from beginning to end. Like I know you all will. And you'll say, I've heard that before. And then you go, you know what? I'm pretty sure Grandma's got that on a like a tapestry on her wall. I'm pretty, that might be hanging in the hallway at Grandma's house. And so your curiosity is piqued, and you say, I'm going to Google that phrase. You go into Google search bar, and you type in, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Or maybe you just take your Bible, and you look at the little numbers and use your concordance. And you go, oh, that's Isaiah chapter 11. So you go over to Isaiah chapter 11. You say, I knew I had heard that before. Isaiah chapter 11 says this, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. 
the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And in his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his, what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. Right. This is why Habakkuk's placed it in here, because that's all about judgment, isn't it? He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips. He shall kill the wicked. God, will the wicked triumph forever throughout all of time? No, this this root, this stump of Jesse will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and he'll kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. And the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like an ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be filled with the full knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters covers the seas. God will judge the wicked in Jesus Christ. And at His second coming, new creation, new heavens, new earth, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. And you go, yes, this passage is about Jesus. Yes, this passage is about Babylon and their wickedness and how God will destroy them. But even verse 3 hinted at it. Even verse 3 hinted at it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. The appointed time, that language is used of of Daniel to speak about this same time of the coming of the Messiah. And... If it seems slow, wait for it. It hastens to the end. The end. It hastens to the end. God often communicates in this way. Some call it like a telescoping, like a telescoping way. There's this obvious meaning about God destroying the Babylonians and their wickedness. But all of a sudden, we have this massive new creation language that centers on the coming Messiah. The son of Jesse. The fall of Babylon, it's, it's communicating what happens, but it's communicating something beyond it, something greater. That's the ultimate answer to the problem of, of evil. Will the wicked go on swallowing up the righteous forever? Will they just sweep away everyone? Will wickedness win? And the answer is no, because God will ultimately destroy the wicked and establish his kingdom in Jesus Christ. Some have compared this type of revelation to like a mountain range. Like you go and you climb a mountain and you think that's the top. And then you get up there and you're like, oh, there's another mountain peak that's just like this one right behind it. And that's how God sometimes communicates this type of truth. So the fall of Babylon and the destruction of the wicked in Babylon, they picture a greater destruction. And that's seen in Revelation 18. And we're not going to go there because we'll have to interact with this in the coming weeks. But in Revelation 18... The term is Babylon the Great. Babylon the Great has been destroyed. And so what's pictured in your Bible really is, some have called it two cities. It starts with Augustine. There's the city of God and the city of man. 
And you go all the way back to the Tower of Babel, and you can see man trying to establish his own kingdom. Let's make a great name for ourselves. God says, hey, spread out over all the land. And man says, no, I don't think we will. I think we'll make a name for ourselves here in Babylon. And so God destroys the Tower of Babel, scatters man. But all throughout the rest of the Bible, what's man doing? Still trying to build that kingdom, the kingdom of man. Babylon pictures here in their destruction, the final destruction of man's rebellion against God. And it's all centered on Christ. God's word is Christological. And you don't need me to tell you that. You could have got there just with a little curiosity because you've read it before. It's plain. God's word is Christological. And we are, in a way, waiting, right? He told Habakkuk, hey, wait, because you may think it's not coming, but it's coming. Just trust me. Right? And it came. But the second one's not here yet. Babylon the Great is rampaging through the earth. And here we are, 2,000 years after Christ, and we're still waiting. We're waiting for the Messiah to return. We're waiting for him to strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and to destroy and to kill the wicked. We're waiting for Christ to win out completely. And some may even, they would doubt, they doubt it. They say, ah, he's slow in coming. He's not coming. You guys have been waiting around saying this forever. You guys have been waiting forever. And, you know, Second Peter, George has preached through this passage about how people will mock. They'll mock. The wicked mock. They say, he's not coming. The earth is still going like it always has gone. Where's he at? He's slow. He's not coming. But Peter tells us he's coming to be patient, to wait. Because with God, a thousand years is one day. And he's not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness. He's patient. Why is he patient? He doesn't want any of his people to perish. God has a people for Christ from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation all over the world. But... We can't see it, but it transcends like our present time. There may be a people for, for Christ a thousand years from now. We don't know. We don't know according to God's time. But if God delays in destroying the wicked, it's simply because He's good. And He's patient. And He wants all of Christ's people to come home. But if it seems slow, wait for it. It's not going to delay. It's surely coming. It's pictured in the destruction of Babylon. So four characteristics of the foundation of our, of our faith. God's word, God's revelation to man is, is written. God's revelation to man is plain. God's revelation to man is trustworthy. And God's revelation to man is Christological. And if you're here today and you are not a Christian, you're not a Christian, I pray that you would simply take God at his word. You've heard enough today to become a Christian, even right now. God judges the wicked. God's just. And your sin will either be judged in you or it will be judged in Christ. And I pray, it is my hope, that everyone's here, that all of your sin and your wickedness will be judged in Christ. And I pray that you would simply come and take God at His word. God's word is... We have God's written word telling us that if you turn from your sins and you trust Christ, 
that he'll forgive you. Christ died for sinners just like you. And if you'll simply come to him by faith, he will receive you. He'll forgive you of your sins. He'll give you a new heart. He'll adopt you into his family. You can trust him. I pray that you will. If you're a Christian here today, take, take comfort in this. Take comfort in this, that our God is sovereign over all nations. His word is trustworthy. God's word, though, no matter what the culture tells you, that you're on the wrong side of history, you're not on the wrong side of history, right? God's word doesn't change because the culture changes, because everyone else thinks that we've outgrown God's ethics. God's word is the same today, yesterday, forever. It's trustworthy. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. It's the foundation of our faith, and the righteous will live by faith. Let's pray. Now we thank you for your word. That you would communicate to us, we take it for granted. Communicate to humans in a way that our brains can comprehend the most infinite, perfect, boundless, immense person in the universe. And you reveal to, uh, to us yourself most clearly in Jesus. And that too we take for granted. God, help us to love Christ more because we love your word more. And we know him because you revealed him to us through your word. And if there's any here that do not know you, Lord, I pray you would grant them repentance leading to eternal life. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.